Last week, we saw how God uses the circumstances of our lives to actually purge us of the things that we're hiding from him and from other people. He gives us the gift of conviction so that he will uncover our sin and our guilt so that we can bring our sin to him, so that we can go to God's appointed means of forgiveness and for covering. We saw we, we can't downplay our sin, we can't hide from it, and we can't outrun it. We have to confess it and take it to Jesus. But uh, we're going to pick up where we left off, this scene where Joseph is about to reveal himself to his brothers. But if the Lord showed you a lot of things in your life last week that he was purging or uncovering, you, you got honest with yourself and with him last week, you might feel like you're in the middle of a purge. And I was talking to a friend this week. It's like that junk drawer that everybody has in their house where everything goes and you have not seen it or touched it. Maybe for you, it's a closet and everything just goes into it. And the idea of actually going in and opening that up and cleaning it out feels like a nightmare. And once you do, it actually gets worse before it gets better. And you may be there this week where you feel like last week God shined his light on all these things in your life and you actually just feel like you've emptied out the junk drawer and you're sitting in the midst of a mess. And so if that's you, then I want you to know that this morning is for you. Today, we're going to look at Joseph revealing himself to his brothers and then covering their sin and their guilt with grace and forgiveness. So let's pray and then we'll dive into our text. Father, there is no one like you. In heaven or on earth, there's no one next to you. And we want to bow ourselves before you as creatures this morning. Lord, totally dependent on you for all of our life. Nothing in our lives belongs to us. We are stewards of even the breath that you give to us. It all belongs to you. And the desire of our hearts as your people who are called by your name, those who have placed their trust in Jesus, you have a, a double claim on our lives. You have bought us by the blood of Christ so that we don't belong to ourselves. We want to honor you. We want you to purge things from our lives that are dishonoring to you. And we want to be faithful. And we want to trust you, that you are who you say you are and that you've done what you said you've done. And all of this is a miracle. And so we are asking for you, Holy Spirit, to come and open eyes and to open ears and to make us humble before your word so that we don't just coast through the preaching of the word of God, but that we would regard it for what it really is and that we would be a people, Rivertown Church, who hear what your spirit is saying and respond with faith and obedience. Would you come and produce it? Lord, what we cannot produce in ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Genesis chapter 45, beginning in verse 1. We're picking up in the middle of a scene. So Joseph's just seen this moving uh, act by Judah, who was one who was part of selling him into slavery. So quick backstory, if you're brand new to the story of Joseph, 22 years before this, his brothers had betrayed him. They wanted to kill him. And they ended up selling him into slavery. And God, uh, over the last 22 years, has taken Joseph through trial after trial, prison um, and jail time again and again, imprisoned unjustly. And then now, 
uh, he has been exalted to second in command over all of Egypt. And his brothers have come to him in the midst of a famine because the famine was severe throughout the whole land. And they're coming to Joseph to buy food in Egypt. And to this point, he's disguised himself. He's been acting in the wisdom of God to um, create circumstances where their guilt would be uncovered and they would be convicted by God. And so in the last scene, Judah, who was part of selling him into Egypt, was now offering to take the place of Benjamin, his brother, as a substitute in Benjamin's place so that Benjamin could go free. And Joseph's so moved by the contrast of what he sees in Judah from when Judah sold him into slavery to now Judah taking Benjamin's place and moved by the concern that he hears of his father for him and for his brother that he can't take it any longer. He's, he's got to now reveal himself to his brothers. So verse 40, uh, chapter 45, verse 1 says, Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Now, get the scene. He's making everybody go out from him because he's second in command of all of Egypt. And this is like, you know how New Englanders, you don't really like showing your emotions around other people. This is like, Egypt's like that, right? So he's like, everybody's got to get out because I'm about to lose it. And he weeps so loud. It's like all these other people outside heard it. Like you're not supposed to cry. And they're hearing him wail in front of his brothers. And Joseph says to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord over all Egypt. Come down to me. And do not tarry. And then verse 10 through 13 speaks of uh, his provision of them, which uh, we'll get to next week. But then you look in verse 14, it says, Then Joseph fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck, and he wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. So we're going to do... we're going to follow the same pattern, the same movements that we have been through the life of Joseph, who is one of the clearest types and foreshadowings of the Christ who is to come. So we're going to look at this scene in the life of Joseph that happened almost 4,000 years ago. And then we're going to fast forward to look at this same mirroring instances in the life and ministry of Jesus. And then we're going to fast forward to the implications for us today. So first, Joseph's forgiveness of his brothers. And you can see that his forgiveness of his brothers begins with him revealing himself to them. 
to this point, Joseph has been unrecognized by his brothers, which is miraculous if you think about it. It's like this hardness of heart and this blindness. They have bowed in front of this dude three different times now. And one of the greatest sins of their life was tied to their hatred of their brother for saying that they would bow before him and they're not drawing the connection. They're not putting two and two together that, oh, maybe this guy that we're bowing in front of over and over again is our brother who had this dream who told us that we would be bowing down before him. So there's an interpreter between them. Even though Joseph can speak the language, they have no idea. They have no idea that he can understand them. And so Joseph this whole time has been speaking in the Egyptian tongue and there's been an interpreter between them. So now when he wants to make himself known, he sends everybody out of the room and then he cries out to them in their native Hebrew tongue, speaking to them clearly in a way that they can understand for the first time saying, I am Joseph. I am your brother. Now this is massive. You see this compassion in this love for them that is spilling over. He's, it's been there under the surface the whole time as he has been acting wisely to see their guilt purged from them. But now it's like he can contain himself no longer. His compassion and his love for his brothers who had betrayed him, who after 22 years, he would have had so much opportunity to think about all the vengeance and all the things that he would have done when he finally got his chance to pay them back. And instead, you, what you see spilling over out of Joseph is this love and this compassion and this pity, and he is weeping over them. And he's saying, I am your brother. Not, I used to be your brother before you sell, sold me into slavery, but it's me. And this is so telling to them that it's actually Joseph because to this point, they had hidden this sin. Nobody knew that they had sold him into slavery. And so this was telling, I'm your brother, you know, the one that you sold into slavery, which by itself is like, he would not have known that unless he was really Joseph. And so in verse 12, he says, now your eyes see, it's me speaking to you. And so how do Joseph's brothers respond to this revelation of who Joseph is? The text says in verse three, that his brothers were speechless. They could not answer him. And it says the reason why they were dismayed at his presence. Now, some other translations say troubled. It's hard to unpack in one word what all is going on in their emotions here, but you know the feeling, right? When your guilt gets uncovered and the shoe drops and all of the weight of your sin and your hiding, what you've hidden gets uncovered. So what they're experiencing in this moment is shock, fear, shame, guilt. They are looking face to face with what they have sought to run from for 22 years now. And they're looking at conviction in the face and they are so terrified and ashamed that they cannot speak to him a word. And so how does Joseph respond to that? Well, he invites them to come near to him. And he, into the midst of their shock and guilt, he invites them to come closer and he reassures them that he is for them, that he is forgiving them, that he loves them, that he's got compassion for them. Yes, he's ruler over all of Egypt, and yet he's their brother. So what you have in this passage is one of the most beautiful instances of forgiveness and grace in all the Bible. It's definitely in all of the Old Testament. He tells them, 
don't be angry with yourselves. This is love and compassion on steroids. He's saying, I know that you're feeling a lot right now, that you are furious with yourselves, that you feel shame, that you feel guilt. And I'm saying, don't be mad at yourself. Don't, don't be grieved over this. Don't mire in self-pity and in self-loathing. And you can imagine how hard this would be for Joseph's brothers to accept when this guilt and this shame that they felt, they had felt for so long that it became part of who they were. It felt like this, is, this guilt, this shame they'd lived with for so long that it was part of the fabric of their being. And now Joseph is saying, I'm forgiving this. Come near to me. Don't be angry or mad at yourselves for this thing. And it would have been massively hard for them to hear and to accept. And we see that later. They have a hard time accepting Joseph's forgiveness. But I'm sure that they never thought that they would see this day, an opportunity for reconciliation with Joseph, and that when they saw him face to face, maybe they had been afraid that they would run into Joseph this whole time that they were in Egypt. And then when they see him face to face, Joseph forgives them in love and in grace. He covers their sin. And the text says that he kisses all of them. This is not like feigned forgiveness. Every single one of them, the ones that were more culpable in selling them into Egypt and the ones that were less, all of them, he receives to himself and he kisses them and receives them back as brothers. Now, this is amazing. In chapters 43 through 44, every time Joseph's brothers are mentioned, it's those men, that, the men. The men came down. The men did this. The men did this. And now in chapter 45, nine different times in chapters 43 through 44, they're mentioned as the men. And now in 45, when they meet Joseph face to face and he covers their guilt and their shame with forgiveness, now five times again they're referred to as his brothers. His brothers because he's receiving them back to himself and covering their guilt. No longer are they those men, those strangers, those guilty ones. He brings them near and he covers their guilt with grace and he calls them afresh his brothers. But I want you to miss the reason that Joseph gives for such a full and free forgiveness. For sure, he loves them. You could see that overflowing and how he's weeping over them in the midst of forgiving them. But Joseph's faith in God's sovereign goodness fueled his forgiveness of his brothers. He had this awareness of the sovereign goodness of God and God's providence in all of his actions in the world. And that is what undergirded his forgiveness and kept him from having a bitter heart all these years. He says in verse 5, Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, Because you sold me here, why? For God sent me before you to preserve life. So he's saying, don't be angry with yourselves and I'm not angry with you and here's why. Here's the reason why I'm not bitter and furious at you for this great grievance that you've committed against me. It's because all this while, this was the activity of God. He was doing this. God was in this ultimately to rescue you. The very ones who sold me into slavery. He was in this so that you, the guilty ones, might be forgiven and kept alive. He says it again in verse 8. So it was not you who sent me here. It was. They did send him there. But he's saying, ultimately, the decisive factor in in me being sent into Egypt was God. God 
is the one who has now made me Lord of all Egypt. So this is important. When you think about forgiveness in your own life, Joseph is not saying that what they did is okay and that it's not a big deal. Joseph is saying where your sin abounded, God's grace abounded all the more. You, you could not mess up the righteous plan of God that all the while you intended, he says this in chapter 50, you intended this evil against me, but God intended it for good and for the salvation of many lives. And so Joseph's trust in God is what kept him from bitterness and from vengeance. And he looks on them with compassion and pity. And he covers the ugliness of their sin and years of guilt with compassion and grace and forgiveness and points to God prevailing over them in the midst of their sinfulness. God's will and God's wisdom prevailed over the sin of Joseph's brothers. We're going to transition to the one that this is foreshadowing all along. But before we get there, I want to point to this. I, I want you to bring this home. We're going to have a, a, the whole back half of this is going to be applying this into our lives. But I want you to be thinking about this. Imagine in your life with all the people that have hurt you or that have wronged you or the people that you are prone to feel bitter about, saying this in your life, God's purposes were bigger than the sin you committed against me. And I trust him. God's purposes were bigger than the sin that you committed against me. And I trust him. And you let his purposes in the midst of your life, in the midst of all the hurt and the pain and the suffering that you've experienced, you trust that God's good and that God is in control. And from there, you're able to extend forgiveness and grace to people. Um, and we'll talk about other sources for grace and forgiveness in a bit. So all of this, of course, is a picture of Christ and the forgiveness that is found in him alone. So I want to move to Joseph as a type of Christ in the midst of this uh, picture of these nine verses that we're looking at in Genesis. So first, I want to see uh, with you that our life has to start with um, a revelation of who Jesus is. This is where Jesus begins with his disciples. And it's when you see Jesus as he is, that you will see yourself as you are. This is what happened with Joseph's brothers. Joseph reveals himself to them and they are ex further exposed in the midst of their sin and they, they see him clearly and they see themselves clearly in light of seeing him. And so I want to look with you at Peter as an example. Uh, Peter, we know, is the, the leader of the disciples and is a picture of all of the disciples. That's why so many of us can resonate with Peter. And we see Peter seeing himself for who he is when Jesus first calls him. And we know that this is what happens when we first place our trust in Christ. We see Jesus for who he is. We see him in his holiness and we see us in our sinfulness. And we come to him for mercy and forgiveness that's found by faith in him alone. This is what happened to Peter when he's first called by Jesus and Jesus commissions him to go set out, put its nets out for a catch. And Peter looks at him and basically is saying, Jesus teachings your thing and fishing's my thing. And I've been fishing all night. But at your word, I mean, I'll do what you say. And then he has this massive catch. And he comes and he falls at Jesus' feet and he says, 
depart from me. I am a sinful man, right? I have, I have prioritized my wisdom above your wisdom. And I think I know what's best over what you say. And I am a sinful man, Lord. I see you in the midst of your holiness and see you for who you really are. And when we see him for who he is, we see ourselves for who we are. And that is what happened to Peter at, when he was first called by Jesus. But I think a more pressing illustration for Peter is when he finds himself in the same place that Joseph's brothers found themselves in, in the aftermath of betrayal of his brother. So uh, let's look at Peter at his denial and then his subsequent restoration. So fast forward years, Peter has been faithfully walking with Jesus. He is one of the inner three. So of Jesus's disciples, if Jesus had closest friends and guys that he poured into the most, Peter was the guy. And he is the one that God gave this revelation to, that this apostolic confession is built on, that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living And so Peter is the leader among the disciples. He he follows him so faithfully that when Jesus is at the Last Supper and he says, one of you is going to betray me, and they're all questioning, who is it, Lord? Who is it, Lord? Peter's the one who self-confidently exclaims, Lord, it won't be me. I'll follow you into death. I would never deny you or betray you. But we know that Jesus tells him, Look, before the crow, I mean, before the rooster crows three times, then you're going to deny me three times. Or before he crows twice, you'll deny me three times. So Peter experiences a greater failure than any of your failings that you could imagine. All the guilt that you feel for your different failures of King Jesus. The the things that are, that you feel like you've walked away from him and you are living in such a dry spot, such a far spot, that you feel like you can't draw near to Jesus. This is what happened with Peter. He failed Jesus at the most important hour in the history of the universe, when Jesus was going to the cross to bear the sins of the world. And from a human perspective, when, when, a, when someone would need their closest friends at their hour of greatest need, I'm not saying Jesus has needs, but when from a human perspective you would need a friend the most, Peter fled and failed him. Now, he didn't sell him into the hands of Rome like, Judah, like Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, but he functionally did. He functionally sold his brother into the hands of danger. And he left him at the hour of his greatest need. He denies him three times and Jesus looks at him and when he does, Peter broke says he went out and he wept bitterly. He is full of self-loathing for all of his betrayal of Jesus. And in the midst of that, Jesus goes to the cross anyways. This is where you see Jesus being a picture of Joseph trusting in God's sovereign goodness as he forgives his people. He trusts that all the while going, going the way of the will of the Father, he's trusting that God was using and ordaining all that was happening by the hands of evil men to produce the salvation of many lives. And with utmost mercy and love, Jesus cries out in a prayer from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But 
Fast forward and look to the forgiving and the restoring of Jesus' brothers. So the Bible says all the disciples fled from him. It wasn't just Peter. Everybody abandoned him in his hour of his cross. They all betrayed him. And you can imagine their guilt and their sorrow over their failure. Just imagine the, the dejection and the aftermath of Jesus dying on the cross. He had told them three times exactly what was happening. They should have known that the resurrection was coming, but all they're feeling in those moments is sorrow. You see that on the Emmaus Road, these disciples that are sorrowful over this one that they thought was a great prophet and they thought was the Messiah and he was killed and they're, they're, many of them are just broken and sorrowful over their failure of Jesus and wallowing in their guilt and in their unbelief. And after Jesus raises victorious from the dead, an angel appears to the ladies at the tomb. And what does he tell them? Mark chapter 16, verse 6 through 7. This is the angel speaking to these ladies at the tomb. Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Praise his name. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So this angel is specifically saying, because he loves Peter and he knows how Peter denied him in the place that Peter was in. And so this angel is telling, go tell all the disciples, everybody who had failed him, go tell the disciples and go and tell Peter. He will see him in Galilee. And then right after this, Jesus himself shows up to these ladies. This is Matthew chapter 28. It says, behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. So I want you to see Joseph as a type of Christ in that in the midst of his people's greatest failings, Jesus after his resurrection, is saying, go tell my brothers that I will see them in Galilee. That this failing, this sin, could not keep them from his abounding grace for them and his restoration of them. Jesus then appears to Peter. Paul writes, before the rest of the 12. We don't have an account of this, but he's, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, he appeared to Simon and then to the rest of the 12. So this friend... This one who betrayed him, who was a beloved brother that he allowed to be sifted and broken, was in need of special restoration. And so Jesus appears to him first. This is like him revealing, Joseph revealing himself to his brothers and his brothers being stuck in guilt and shame and Joseph saying, come near to me. You can go read John chapter 21. Jesus takes time to restore Peter in the midst of his brokenness and his guilt. There is a scene that is exactly like his original calling where he's fishing and he lets down his nets and there's this huge catch and he realizes it's the Lord and it's Jesus restoring him and giving him a, a starting over as a man who's been sifted and broken and purged and now made new and he he gives him opportunity to confess his love for Jesus once for every time that he denied him, and Jesus restores him. Jesus' first words to his disciples when he 
appears to them for the first time. You can read in Luke chapter 24. This is right after Jesus is revealing himself to these two disciples on the Emmaus Road. And as they come back and they give an account of Jesus opening their eyes and them seeing Jesus, it says, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, it's the first word out of his mouth, peace to you. All you who have sinned against me, all you who have failed me, all you unworthy. He rises victoriously from the grave and he, he appears to them. And the first word out of his mouth is not a rebuke. The first word out of his mouth is peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and they thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? You know that word for troubled right there is the same word that the Septuagint uses for Joseph's brothers were troubled and unable to speak to Joseph. And so Jesus comes to his disciples. They see Jesus as he is, and they're troubled. They're shocked. They feel guilt. They feel shame. And he says, why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Come near. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. So Jesus is having the same moment with his disciples in the midst of their failure and their guilt, and he's saying, it's me. You're my brothers. Come see. Come experience my restorative power and forgiveness and grace. And so where does that leave us today? Well, first, we have desperate need of Jesus' revelation. We have desperate need of seeing him as he is and seeing ourselves as we are. I was reading this week in uh, Mark chapter 10, and I'm always so moved by blind Bartimaeus sitting on the side of the road. And you see this just real simplicity of where Bartimaeus is and a picture of where we are spiritually in our greatest need. Bartimaeus is blind, and he is unable to give himself sight. But he has zero dignity in the midst of his need because he knows that he's blind. He knows where he is. And so a knowledge of where he really is and a knowledge of what Jesus can do puts him on the ground in desperate faith, crying out to Jesus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now listen, Jesus doesn't owe anybody mercy. He doesn't owe it to you to open your eyes in this moment for you to see him as he really is and for you to see yourself as you really are. And you can leave here Without seeing him as he is and seeing ourselves as we are, we will live self-deceived and self-righteous lives. Or we'll live in unbelief. And we'll just live with our version of Jesus, the Jesus that we've seen or the Jesus that we've made peace with. Or we'll view ourselves with a more self-righteous view of ourselves than what we actually are. But Bartimaeus knew that he needed sight. And so he's on, his, on the ground saying, Jesus have mercy on me. Unless you touch my eyes, I will not see. And Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And he says, master, I want to receive my sight. And Jesus says, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And so in our sanctification, we know that the Christian life is beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. And we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. But we can't lose this desperation for revelation that Jesus 
would reveal himself because unless he does, we will be like the brothers who won't recognize him. Even though he can, things can happen over and over again that should be obvious to us, that should have made it plain to us. But unless he comes and says, this is who I am, you will not see. And so we need to have a humble posture before him to say, Jesus, we want to see you. And we want to see ourselves for who we are. Now, seeing yourself for who you are, this is a two-part thing, believer, because you need to see, if you are in Christ, your position in him, that you are a forgiven and pardoned son or daughter of the living God. And you need to not be living in unbelief that you're somehow not a child of God, not fully pardoned, not fully forgiven, where we live in a, a shameful place and we don't draw near because we don't really see ourselves for who we are in Christ. But we also need to not be self-deceived in the midst of our progress in our walking with Jesus. So we need to see ourselves as we are in our position with God, that he really has declared us righteous and innocent because of the blood of Christ and we need to see ourselves as we are so that we don't think that we're further along in our sanctification, but we come to him and say, search me and try me and see if there be any hidden way, a hurtful way in me and lead me in your way. And we need to know that this process of transformation on the road of following Jesus is full of purging and pain. It is painful to go from who you are to being Christ-like. It's going to be a road that's full of humility and suffering and the Father's discipline so that you can share in the holiness of Christ. But it is a way that leads to glory and it begins with revelation. So we have to begin here and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I don't want to coast in the Christian life. I don't want to live on yesterday's vision of you. I need to see you today. And I need fresh faith to believe that you are who you say you are and that you have done what you said that you've done. And I want you to come. Help me to see myself clearly and purge me of what is not honoring to you. Now, this is really important. So first, we need to look to Jesus. We have desperate need for revelation. The second, we need to heed his invitation to come to him for the removal of our guilt. This is what Joseph does. They're unable to speak to him a word, and he says, come near to me. And he reassures them in the midst of their guilt. And he says, come near to me. Be not angry or grieved with yourselves. Now, I want you to lean in right here because I think this is where a lot of our people are at. Joseph was saying this because God used it. He says, don't be angry with yourselves because God used it. But I think this also points to how people can stand as judge over themselves and wallow in condemnation. So last week, we saw that when you downplay sin, you are living like the cross wasn't needed, right? You make an excuse for sin, you downplay sin, you try to outrun sin, you don't need the cross. You're saying, I don't need the atoning work of Jesus. I don't need the blood of Jesus to cleanse me of my sin and forgive, myself, forgive me of sin. I can manage this sin. So we live like the cross isn't needed. 
But here, we're seeing when you don't accept the forgiveness of God, you are living like the cross wasn't effective. You are living like Jesus' blood wasn't really sufficient to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you, to remove it. And shame can keep you from coming to Jesus for mercy and help in time of need. It is easier to believe the guilt that you feel than to believe the promise that when we take it to Jesus, he actually cleanses you of your unrighteousness and removes it from you. So we're people that believe our feelings of how we feel about our sin and how we feel about forgiveness and we sit as judge over ourselves rather than accepting God as judge over us and accepting how he has accepted the sacrifice of Jesus in our place. It's, it's a false humility that looks like this. I don't know if I can forgive myself. Anybody ever been there? Like, yeah, I know that, I know I hear you saying that God forgives me, but you don't know what I've done or where I've been. You don't know how dark the thoughts have been in my head. You don't know what I have been hiding. But this is what I want to say to you. With all the pastoral love and grace I can muster, who are you? Who do you think you are? Right? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, I don't even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. That is what God is saying over your life. I am your judge, not you. So listen to this carefully. You don't need to forgive yourself. You're not in a position to forgive yourself. It actually doesn't matter whether you forgive yourself or not. You need to believe that if you confess your sin, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from your unrighteousness. You need to believe. This is a battle of faith. You need to repent of unbelief and believe that you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's what we need to believe. We need to believe that we who were formerly, chapter 43 and, 40, 43 and 44, those men, those women, we have now been brought near, and now he calls us brothers. This is why Hebrews says, he's not ashamed to call you brothers because he has made his father your father. This is his whole purpose for you. He has brought you out of darkness into his light and has put Christ in you and is forming you into the image of Christ so that he'd sanctify you and glorify you and Jesus would be the firstborn among many brothers. This is his purpose for you, to forgive you, to cleanse you, and to bring you near. And what the enemy wants to do, the accuser of the brethren, wants to accuse you and make you live like you're somehow like he gave you up, like, like you're somehow lesser than, he's kicked you out of the family, or you're like a stepbrother, or you're not really forgiven and in the family. But listen to this. We have desperate need of taking God at his word and believing him. Listen to this. Romans 8, 
What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? And I would answer that question for you. Nobody. Not the devil. Not you. You don't get to be judge over yourself. If he says, if God is for you, then who can be against you? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also not with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of the Father, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Can't. And so when we are content to live in a far country with our shame and our guilt, we are living like that even though Jesus died on the cross to take away our sins, and even though he rose from the grave to give us life, and even though he ascended to the right hand of the Father and is even now praying for you and interceding for you, it somehow is not enough. And you need to continue to live in a far country, in a purgatory of sorts, with you punishing yourself and you wallowing in self-pity and in self-condemnation. And it's unbelief, believer. It's unbelief when he says, who can separate you from the love of God in Christ? And you say, I can. Or God is the one who justifies, who declares you righteous and forgiven and pardoned. Who is the one to condemn? And you say, me, me and the devil actually are doing a pretty good job. And you need to repent and come afresh to the cross. Listen to the beginning of Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That location is huge. If you have not turned from your sin and placed your trust in Christ Jesus alone for your salvation, you only have condemnation. You need to hear the Spirit of God calling to you in this hour, saying, repent and believe on Jesus. God has made a way for you to be forgiven and freed and reconciled to him. And Jesus is the only way to the Father. But if you have placed your trust in him, you have been united to Christ by faith and you are one with him. So that now there is no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. Why? For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, God condemned sin in the flesh of Christ. In order that, in order that, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Translation. Jesus fulfilled the law with his righteousness that you could not fulfill. And he took your place on the cross and your sin was condemned in the flesh of Christ Jesus and you get the benefits of living the righteous life that he lived all as a gift of his grace. And that is positionally true of you if you are in Christ. You don't get to make that untrue by your sin, by your waywardness, by walking away from Jesus, by living 22 years in your guilt and wallowing in it. You cannot undo what Christ has done. So we need to see him in all of his glory and see us in all of our need and come to him and believe this again. And then lastly, and this is big, 
We need to cultivate a culture of grace and forgiveness in this church. We need to cultivate a culture of grace and forgiveness in this church. Listen to Romans 5. We're making use of Romans today, and I love it. Romans 5, 20 through 21. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So listen to this. If you are in Christ, his grace outpaces your sin and swallows it whole. This is the reality of grace abounding all the more. Where your sin abounds, he's got grace for that. Where your sin abounds, he's got grace for that. In Romans 5, Paul says God's actually shown to be more gracious by your sin so that even your sin glorifies God in highlighting the miracle of his grace. Grace is so scandalous that by the time he gets to Romans 6, people would be tempted to think, well, so then let's just sin because if my sin glorifies God by God being gracious and covering it, then let's just sin all the more so that grace could increase. And Paul says, may it never be. How can we who have died to sin live in it? But the grace is there. The grace is there to forgive us of our sin and the grace is there by his Holy Spirit to empower us to be putting our sin to death by the Spirit. But you need to hear this. There is no sin so grievous that Jesus by his grace, cannot remove it from you when you come to him. There's no grace too big. I mean, there's no sin too big for the grace of God. And so the question is, does grace reign through the righteousness of Christ here in this church? Does grace reign? That's powerful language. Grace is king. Grace is in charge. Grace rules and reigns, does it reign in you? Does it reign in you because of the righteousness of Christ where we have a culture of grace because of the grace that we've received in Jesus? And for us to do some soul searching on, that's in contrast to an outward righteousness that it really hides from other people. And it's sad to say that we see this in our church and we see it in churches all around. It is so easy to want to save face and maintain the appearance of righteousness, to maintain the appearance of having things together and having the appearance of honoring God, all the while hiding our sin from people. Trying to deal with our sin before God, all the while hiding it from each other. We talked about this last week. God's appointed means for healing from our sin is confession to one another. So this is cycle, church. We see it all the time. That when things are going well and when you feel like you're maintaining your righteousness pretty well, you're involved in the body and you're engaged in fellowship. And then the moment that you stop following Jesus faithfully, the moment that you give way to some sin in your life, you hide. You disappear. You stop texting. You stop communicating. You, or you withdraw emotionally and you're still present and you're still there because you don't want people to think that you're hiding. You don't want people to actually chase you down. So maybe the middle zone is the best of all worlds where you can show up physically, but you can still be hiding. 
And so what we need is to repent and to receive the grace of God. What Eric read earlier, Ephesians 1, 7 through 8, in Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. And so we're walking among each other like people who have been brought near by the blood of Christ and who have received forgiveness from Jesus. And we know that he's lavished that on my neighbor. And so I'm going to lavish it on you. It's, it's remembering what we talked about last week, that the only time that God was described as in a hurry in the Bible is when the father's running to greet the prodigal son coming home. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 who don't need repentance. Are we that church or are we the 99 that don't need repentance? So we need to receive the grace of God, but then once we receive the grace of God, we need to give grace to be a place where people can be healed and restored. If shame can keep us from coming to Jesus for mercy and help in time of need, it certainly keeps us from coming to our brothers and sisters from receiving healing from the Lord. But the problem is James writes in James chapter 5, that's the only way that healing comes. So we have a lot of people that are hurt and broken and living in it. And the way out is humbling ourselves before God and before each other and confessing our sins to each other so that we can receive healing from the Lord. But this is the question. Are you part of creating an environment where people feel safe to do that? Are you a kind of person where people can bring their leprosy to? The kind of sin that would make everybody else cringe or run away in disgust. But people know they can come to you because you're like Jesus. And they know that you'll come to them with a touch in the midst of their leprosy. To touch them at the point of their need. To give them the gospel. To remind them of the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And to see his healing touch come through you. People won't confess sin to cringing faces or to hearts that they don't repent and confess before hearts that recoil at real sin. And so this is just a plea to our church. We've taught a lot on forgiveness and the need to forgive. That's throughout this message. You could be living in a far place because you are withholding forgiveness from somebody that's hurt you. And Joseph's example cries out to you, trust God, trust that he was in charge over all of this. And even though you don't understand it all, you can trust him and he's good and you can extend forgiveness to other people because of the grace and the forgiveness that you've experienced in Jesus. We have taught that a lot in this church. But what I want to hammer home right now is that we would be a people when we realize that most people are like Joseph's brothers in the midst of seeing themselves as they really are and they live terrified and afraid and in the midst of their shame, will you help to create an environment where people come to you with their leprosy like they came to Jesus and they know that they're going to be met with grace and mercy and help in time of their need so that it can be said of our church, grace reigns through the righteousness of Christ. There is one Savior. Grace doesn't reign through maintaining the appearance of your own righteousness. Grace reigns through his righteousness, imputed to you and imparted to you as you trust him. We're going to go into a time of communion. I want to leave you with this verse as you think about being part of creating a culture of grace and forgiveness. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 through 2, 
Paul pleads with, exhorts with the Galatian church, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so this call is, is twofold in terms of creating a culture of grace. We need to be a church that lives in the fear of God and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Where God is God and he is holy and we will not tolerate sin. That's what we talked about all last week. We don't downplay sin. We don't excuse it away and we don't try to outrun it. We go to the cross and we go to each other so that we can believe afresh what Jesus has done for us and we can receive healing from the Lord as we seek healing horizontally. But we have to create a culture where the grace of God is believed upon and cherished by every heart so that people can take off the mask and take off the, the whitewashing of their lives and come where we know Jesus is the one who is righteous and he's purging me of this and I want to bring this to you. And I trust that you're going to receive me with a spirit of gentleness. You're not going to leave me there. You're not going to tell me it's okay to stay there. That's not loving. That's not being a brother or sister. But you're going to greet me with grace and say, the grace of God abounds. All the more. Where your sin abounds, grace abounds more. You're coming again and again and again. How many times? Should my brother or sister come to me with the same thing over and over and over again and I forgive them? How many times should I treat them with grace? 70 times 7? But are, are we a place where people can come with real guilt and real sin, not socially acceptable sins, not sins that we've grown comfortable tolerating, but with the darkest parts of our hearts to go to a real brother, a real sister and say, I have sinned against Jesus in this way and I need you to preach the gospel to me. And I, we need to go to the cross together to confess this and to forsake this and to believe afresh. If we confess this, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us and to cleanse us from our unrighteousness. It's grace that's greater than all of our sin. We sing it. We need to believe it. We need to believe it, not just to the point where we're comfortable confessing sins vertically, but where we're comfortable saying, I know that I'm going to be met with grace with these brothers and sisters at Rivertown because we are a people who have received grace and grace reigns in life through the righteousness of Jesus. So we're going to come to the table um, and partake of the Lord's Supper. If you have yet to place your trust in Jesus, this is not for you. Paul writes clearly that some people, and I think he's talking about believers too, if you come and you partake of communion just as a rote exercise, as a religious ritual, but you're not really doing heart work, you're ignoring this whole message, you've got sin in your life that you love more than Jesus and you're unwilling to confess and forsake it, this is not for you. Jesus wants to deal with your sin and he will not be mocked by us rejoicing in the blood of Christ and in the covering of his blood over our sin, all the while enjoying and loving our sin more than him. But this is a place for repentance and for confession that we can come to Jesus and say, I have real sin. And we can have the assurance of pardon today. This is my blood 
poured out for you for the remission of your sins, real sins. And so I want to take time as a church in the quiet of your own heart. Jesus has been revealing himself. And I want you to pray with me like Bartimaeus. Jesus, have mercy on me. I want to see. I want to see you as you are. I want to see myself as I really am. I don't want to live self-deceived. I don't want to live a self-righteous life thinking that I'm better than I am. I want to bring these things that have been in hiding into the light and then come and let him cover your guilt with real forgiveness this morning. So I want you to pray just in the quiet of your own heart and seat. And then um, after Eric's played for a minute or two, um, this side, why don't you come first and receive the elements, take them back to your seat. We're going to partake of them together. So let's pray and ask God to search our hearts and, um, and then we'll take communion together.